Welcome to Autism One, a conversation of hope, brought to you by the Sensory Learning Center with host and mother of a recovering child with autism, Betsy Hicks. All comments, views, and opinions expressed are solely those of the hosts, guests, and callers. In the next hour, Betsy and her guests illuminate how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Here's your host, Betsy Hicks. Welcome to A Conversation of Hope. This is Autism One, and we are live at the Autism One Conference in uh, Chicago at the Westin. We're having a fabulous conference here, and we would like to introduce you to many of the wonderful speakers that are here for this conference. Um, today we have with me, I have with me right now Dr. Phil DiMaio. And um, Doctor, can you please tell me and tell our audience what basically biomedical treatments for autism means? Well, it's a wonderful concept to start with because all of us who either got into this because we have children, as I do with autism, or because we've seen issues with kids with autism and adults that we want to help, realize that autism is a medical illness. It ain't psychiatric. It's really a sickness that our kids have, and it means the same thing as somebody who has, whether it's a heart attack or some other illness, uh, these uh, issues have to do with nutritional problems. They have to do, and this is surprising news to some people, because when you take your child to a doctor and you are told that they have autism, you're told that um, largely, uh, it's changing quite a bit, that it's a psychiatric illness and that you have to do um, physical therapy and some of these things, such as wonderful things like ABA and so on, that really, by and large, are not medically based. However, there are nutritional things we do for our kids because they have tremendous nutritional problems in autism, immunologic problems. Lots of the kids have terrible infections, and even if they don't, their immune systems are totally abnormal, whether it's allergies or not dealing with viruses that are hidden in the body that make them very, very sick. Their metabolism is way off. You know, what they do with their dinner, in other words, and the air they breathe and the water that they drink. It, totally, totally abnormal, and we, we need to help them. And so I, as a physician who basically exclusively practices 99% basically what I do is treating the medical aspects of autism. Whereas I think in the mainstream, my experience certainly was that when we took my son to first be diagnosed, you basically deal with the school district and people who kind of look at behavioral psychological aspects of your child. But then there's the child that stumbles in with a wide-based gait and they can't stand steady. Or the little girl that I have in my practice who has six bowel movements an hour of liquid, smelly, butt-burning bowel movements, okay, and that's why we have somebody here who's going to talk about that, because these are problems where their GI tracts and their nutrition and their digestion are abnormal, and we need to help them. That's what we do. That's what biomedical treatment means. That's a big, it's a big mouthful, and that's a, a lot of very good information because it's just now becoming more understood in the autism um, population that this is not just about the psychological end of things. I'm wanting to really convey through this show all of the hope and all the treatment and all the different therapies that are out there, so many different modalities, so many different opinions as well. Yeah, very um, much. And with the you know, dozens and dozens to, um, of speakers that we have at this conference, we do, we have a lot. Um, what, what would you feel is, is pretty much the biggest message of hope? Well, just that, that you don't have to feel that you've got a lifetime of hell of locking your child in your house, not going in public, or a child who may never be able to live on their own. We want our kids to grow up 
live independently and get married. And, and that seems to be a far stretch when your child doesn't speak and won't eat and doesn't seem to take interest in toys and other children and so on and so forth. So the bottom line is really that if we do special things with their diets, just like a person who has diabetes, mm -hmm. they get better when they have a special diet. Just like someone who's terribly allergic to a certain food that they get better or that they do not have pitfalls and horrible medical problems when you avoid those things in their diet. This is what we do for our kids. And then toxins in the environment, which in my, as you know, my belief is that a lot of those come from vaccinations, which is another issue. We're not going to have that much time for that. But in the environment, there are toxic materials, poisons and pollutants and things like that, even some natural things that our bodies detoxify. Our kids just do not detoxify those yes. uh, normally, and they need help with that. And so we medically apply help to them, just like a person who has a broken bone is not going to walk and heal properly if they need the help from an orthopedic surgeon and they need calcium in their diet and they need to have consideration of how to use their physical body attributes and all that to heal properly. We need to guide them and help them biomedically. Right, and look at all these different ways. Wouldn't you say that a lot of what you're conveying to is that there isn't just one magic bullet. There are so many different aspects to this in treating. Well, I think that's true. I think that, that um, for listeners who may have heard about chelation or may have heard about you know, the uh, low oxalate diet or something like that. Y you're tempted to just try that and see, does my kid get a lot better or my 23-year-old son or my daughter who's autistic with schizophrenia and combinations, are they going to get better? Um, I think that the theme I see in my practice is this is a very complicated disorder with a lot of issues in the GI tract, the nutrition, the metabolism, the immune system, and detoxification. All of it gangs up on the brain and leads to these overt, quote, behaviors, unquote, which are really medical. Just like a person who has a seizure mm -hmm. might have a seizure because they have low blood sugar or because they have brain damage from something or because they have a metabolic disorder where they don't clear and digest and nourish themselves properly with what they eat. Even though they might be eating what seems to be perfectly good food, it's not something that they deal with the same way. So we need to help them with multiple, exactly what you said, Betsy, multiple ways of treatment, multiple things. And I would just say, as a doctor, we only do two things, you know, as doctors. We diagnose and we treat. So when a child comes in who has autism or even OCD and ADD, and these are all related because medically they're the same thing, I believe, that we check their GI tracts, we check their nutrition, we check their metabolism, and we go from there. And we often do have to treat, as you said, many, many things. Right. So I think that's really a good point that you made, that this is very complicated, and it takes someone who's experienced, and that's where we have parent mentors and practitioners and dietitians and physicians and nutritionists and biochemists. We, that's, they're all here. It's a real it's concentration. It's a fabulous yeah. conference. Well, yeah. great. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was Dr. Phil DeMaio, and we're going to bring on now um, Peter Cohen. Peter, thank you for joining us. We're going to be talking now about bowel movements and, and the lack thereof or the overabundance thereof, um, both. And can you pretty much sum up a lot of what's happening with our children's bowel movements? Um, I don't know about a good summary, but I, I, I think that bowel movements are an, an indication of something going terribly wrong in the digestive tract. And I think what we've got, um, what's very evident, not only in research, but actually in clinical practice is the amount of GI distress that these children present with. And so do we have, 
um, ways of evaluating what's going wrong and then effective um, treatments that we can employ to help produce a reversal of the symptomatology and also recovery to the brain. When we think about the gut, the gut is really the passage of entry into the body um, from the external world into the internal world. So how the gut functions in relationship to what we expose it to, the foods we eat. Are we exposing the children to the right types of foods? Are they breaking them down effectively? And then are they taking the nutrients and absorbing them appropriately and assimilating them into molecules that the body needs to use for its metabolism? Um, one of the things that's very critical is to actually evaluate the gut um, and we can do this very simply by observation, by looking at a stool, the frequency of the stool, whether the stool is formed, whether we see particles of undigested food in the stool, whether the stool floats or sinks. Um, you can tip over a diaper into a toilet bowl and see what happens. That gives a good insight into what's going on with the gut. But sometimes the stools can actually appear to be normal and gut function by observation can appear to be normal. And so we overlook then that particular child and we have to, you know, try to understand are there other behaviors that might indicate something going on with the gut. And I think this is very critical for a parent to observe or relay and the practitioner to observe nighttime waking as an indication of gut dysfunction, irritability, aggressiveness, self-injurious behavior, posturing, a child flexing their hips or draping their body over a sofa. So it's not just the actual stool that gives us insight into what's going on. And then the question is, how do we test? Do we employ standard measures of testing such an endoscopy, such as an endoscopy or colonoscopy, or do we use more biomedical-centered tests such as, such as a comprehensive digestive stool analysis, and then how do we interpret that? In standard medicine, the understanding of the CDC is very poor, and the interpretation of the CDSA is obviously very poor, so you need somebody who's somewhat skilled to understand what the markers reflect, and we have markers that might indicate um, maldigestion, they might ha we might have markers that indicate an inability to digest, such as chymotrypsin or pancreatic elastase, um, markers that might indicate malabsorption, such as fatty acids in the stool, which we can parallel with a floating stool, um, markers that might indicate an imbalance of gut flora. Our gut is a host to about 400 different species of bacteria weighing about 3.5 pounds and have a profound implication to human health, the brain, the body. And then we have markers for inflammation, and the inflammation is critical because the gut is a port of entry, is the host to 80% of the body's immune system, and inflammation is the first line of defense of the immune system. So we have calprotectin as a marker in one of our labs to evaluate. Um, in a colonoscopy, we can observe um, by um, tissue analysis, the histopathology, what is going on in, with that tissue, and then that brings us back to are we exposing the body to the right diet that might induce an immune response such as inflammation that might perpetuate a condition of maldigestion, malabsorption, and some of the behavioral issues. So it's a very broad um, area for us to evaluate because it is such a pervasive problem. And when we look at um, the ability of the brain, the large brain, the central nervous system brain to function appropriately, it really depends on the gut. Our gut um, is and the second it, brain. Well, right? the, the second brain, Michael Gershon wrote a very interesting line in his um, book, The Second Brain, and I will use that in my presentation this afternoon, where he says when the, the, the bowel is not working sufficiently, the brain which we give our credence to, the central nervous system brain, can't function. Um, but the gut is actually the host to a larger brain, the enteric nervous system as well, which is associated with motility and why these children have constipation and why they have diarrhea. So it's a very complex picture, and, you know, you can spend a lot of money and spend a lot of time with different practitioners, such as a GI specialist, or you can simply look at a stool and begin to gather from a diaper and the toilet bowl 
what in fact is going on. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. This is a wonderful host of, of information in just a few of five quick minutes. Um, we have some more guests going to be joining us very soon. Please don't go away. We're going to take a quick break right now. When we return, we will have Susan Owens talking about some of the diets and the different diets that are being used in the treatment of autism. Thank you. Stay tuned. This is Autism One, a conversation of hope. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. We had a wonderful experience in our trip to the Sensory Learning Institute. And the main issue, to sum everything up, is that we went there with a child who was out of control and hyper, who had severe sensory issues and autistic tendencies. And we brought home a child who was vastly different. We brought home a child who plays with me and talks to me and looks in my eyes and tells me he loves me. The goal and focus of the sensory learning program is to enable the central nervous system to better process sensory information by simultaneously stimulating visual, auditory, and vestibular systems with light, sound, and motion. By challenging these three sensory systems to work together and adapt to multi-sensory input, this intervention often improves speech, perception, understanding, social interaction, coordinated movement, and the ability to learn. We invite all parents interested in sensory learning program for a child to complete the confidential assessment on our website at www.sensorylearning.com. To create a kind and gentle world, a change in thought patterns and beliefs, individually and collectively, is needed. Join Suze Casey, developer of Belief Repattering, and her guest as they explore questions and conversations that push the boundaries and engage with you in the process of being who we really are and creating what we really want in our lives. What Do You Want Instead invites you to join the conversation every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. What Do You Want Instead supports you in honoring and accepting yourself and making the decisions that create the lifestyle you desire and deserve. Hi, this is Mark Victor Hansen. You know me for Chicken Soup of the Soul, the One Minute Millionaire, and Cracking the Millionaire Code. And what I want you to know is that if you want to have rip-roaringly good health, listen to Health Crusades by my friend John Farley. Tune in to Health Crusades with John Farley every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, only on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Betsy Hicks. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program, here's Betsy. I have joining with me Susan Owens. Hopefully you were able to catch our earlier show where Susan Owens talked about the low oxalate diet. Um, Susan You've been presenting at Dan conferences for quite a while, and um, an autism one as well. You have a lot of information to give. Tell us a little bit about all the different diet modalities. Okay. Well, um, branching off of um, uh, what our previous guest was talking about, when the gut is inflamed, uh, the, the ability to use the foods and what you do with foods changes. And one of the things that has been described in autism for a long time is uh, called the leaky gut. And uh, maybe some people haven't really heard of what that means, but it means that the uh, joints that are between intestinal cells that are called tight junctions, instead of holding um, that uh, 
closed, they actually open up. And this is usually modulated through the immune system and a um, particular molecule called zonulin. But it, when that opens up, then it allows uh, food antigens and chemicals and things that are not normally absorbed to be absorbed so that it gets into the bloodstream. And once it's in the bloodstream, then you can end up reacting to it with um, your immune system reacting just as if it were a, an, a, a, a bug or, you know, a, an infection of some sort. So not only do we have um, food proteins that you might be reacting to, but they're also smaller molecules. And there's been a lot of research done on this in autism through the years. The first theory that came out was looking at the um, opioid excess theory. And what they found, there were about three different scientists that were looking at this, and they found that um, there were certain short uh, pieces of protein called peptides that actually were shaped in such a way that they had activity that was like morphine. And they found that when they took the children off of these foods, that suddenly they would wake up and they would um, be able to engage the world and a lot of, um, of their autistic behavior would go away. And so this um, led to restricting the foods that had these particular peptides in them, and that was the gluten and casein-free diet. Um, then we also had an understanding that because of the gut inflammation, uh, certain enzymes that are actually in the gut could not function, called disaccharides, and those are the ones that break apart starches and, um, and help you metabolize that. And so um, another diet came uh, into vogue uh, called the specific carbohydrate diet, and they found that uh, by restricting um, starches and more complex carbohydrates from the diet that the, the gut would actually heal. And so there's a lot of um, children that are on that diet. And then just recently, we came up with the low oxalate diet. And the oxalate is another compound that's in food, and it's normally not absorbed very much. But if you have a leaky gut, it can be absorbed at maybe seven or eight times the normal rate. And um, we've been astonished to find that the children on a low oxalate diet are, are having improvements and gross motor and fine motor and growth. Some of the children who had not been growing for years are growing two or three inches um, all of a sudden. So um, we also have the issue that these foods that are absorbed, it doesn't matter what you eat, whatever was in the diet, the peptides were getting through and causing allergies. And so once you have the immune system turned on, then you have all these inflammatory factors whose job it is to completely change the way the metabolism works. And so if we can figure out how to close that leaky gut, how to make it where the um, immune system is toned down, then a lot of the biochemical issues that make it where these kids can't detoxify may go away. How does a parent choose the best diet for them? Well, it's a little tough right now because we don't really have good, concrete, objective markers. And so what's happening a lot is that the, the parents are, and, and the, working with their physicians are looking at the particular symptoms that the children have and, and seeing how, how that matches with what tends to improve on these three diets. So I would recommend that um, 
rather than just, you know, throwing a dart to try to figure <laughs> out which one to do, that you speak with your physician about the specific um, issues that are in your child and try to, you know, come to an agreement on which is the better approach. And what may really be a good thing to do is start off with a very limited diet that actually meets the criteria of all three and then gradually introduce mm -hmm. things that would be in one and not in another and then see which way they do better. And if they do better going the STD route, then go that route. If they do better going low oxalate, then go that Route mm -hmm. right. anyway, um, right? You know, for for those of you who are listening too, we're going to be. I highly recommend all of the diets that Susan's talked about have been talked about here. Uh, extremely, actually, everything that we're talking about here has been talked about um, by so many different practitioners. All of the tapes, all of the recordings from this um, conference will be are available at Autism One dot org. That's Autism O N E dot org. Susan, thank you. You're always wonderful to speak with. I always explain things so nice and simply. Next, I'm going to have um, Dr. Alan Lewis, who is going to talk about metabolism. Thank you, Dr. Lewis, for doing this today. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, the first thing I'd like to say is um, it really helped me to think about autism as a medical illness, and I know this has been discussed before, but for many physicians trained, uh, we're taught that it's a psychiatric illness, and it's actually a constellation of multiple medical problems that result in the behaviors that we see as autism. And I think it's important to think about it that way so that it's easier to understand what each of us are talking about. For example, night waking and self-injurious behavior is bowel disease until proven otherwise, in my experience. And some of the other behaviors, sedation, or sleepiness or foggy brain may be related to diet. And knowing that these individual pieces um, or these medical illnesses result in autism then helps me do what I was trained to do in medicine, which is to do what's called a comprehensive differential diagnosis, which is to look at individual parts of the body, immune system, um, bowel function, other function, to determine what's causing what we're seeing. And what I like to focus on is biochemistry. And um, there's many different biochemical imbalances to discuss, but there's two main ones that apply to autism that I think we should look at. And one of those is called pyrrole disorder, and that's measured with a urine cryptoparole. And then something we also talk about is metal metabolism disorder, which has to do with zinc and copper in the body. And the reason to look at these is they have predictable sets of behavior when those problems are occurring. For example, in pyrrole disorder, a person that has elevated pyrroles in their urine typically is a person that has problems with stress sensitivity and anger management, mood instability, and fears. And this in autism may pardon me, manifest itself as poor transitions. And so when we see this type of imbalance, we know by finding the marker in the urine that if we give them additional B6, zinc, magnesium that we can alleviate some of the behaviors. And then in the case of copper and zinc, which are what we talk about in metal metabolism disorders, very high copper can lead to hyperactivity, learning problems, and anxiety. And so by treating the elevated copper, we can see improvements in those type of symptoms. Is this concentrated just on autism, or is this children in general? Well, I think that that's a great question. It's actually children and adults in general. In fact, we don't... All treat children with autism alone, 
where I work, we also treat adults with schizophrenia, depression, bipolar disease, and violent children. And these imbalances are reflected in other patients as well. It's what we're looking at is not so much the diagnosis of autism or the diagnosis of schizophrenia or depression being what we're treating. We're treating the symptom anxiety or paranoia or whatever. And, for example, in zinc deficiency, when one is zinc deficient, one can have problems with immune function, memory problems, anger, anxiety, that type of thing. So when one takes a look at biochemistry reflected in one's behavior, then one has a much better way to understand the behaviors we see in autism as reflective of a medical problem and not a psychiatric illness. Right. You have been working with Pfeiffer Center for a while now, and you've seen quite a few um, adults as well as children. And would you say that, um, going, I'd like to go back to that magic bullet question, because I think it's so important for those people that are out there looking. Would you say that it's so essential that, you know, you, people shouldn't expect it to be over with? Like, how long is this going to take? How long is, you know, I'm sure you get that question right. all the time. Well, I think that that's a great question. I don't think there's any single one treatment for autism because there's no single one cause for autism. And every individual has different elements that are they have problems with. So I would say that, you know, we have to stay the long course. I might say also that the things that have been discussed are primary things that we need to begin with, too, which is dietary management and, to me, restoration of normal biochemistry. Uh, and those are going to be the foundation for long-term care. And then what we're talking about is the medical treatment. And the way I explain it to parents is by doing the things we talk about, we make the brain more amenable to treatment. So what we do can't be alone or in isolation. It has to be paired with educational strategies, behavioral strategies, and those type of things. So it's we're in it for the long haul, no question. But there is also... Um, light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. And we see this every week, every day. That's the best part of all. Exactly. Lots and lots of hope here. Um, I don't want you to go away. Thank you, Dr. Lewis, very much for, for speaking with me today. We are going to take another break right now. Um, when we return, we will have um, Laura Underwood talking about methylation. Um, but once again, I wanted to let you know, to get the tapes from the Autism One Conference, go to autismone, that's O-N-E, dot org. Thank you for staying tuned. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. We had a wonderful experience in our trip to the Sensory Learning Institute, and the main issue to sum everything up is that we went there with a child who was out of control and hyper, who had severe sensory issues and autistic tendencies, and we brought home a child who was vastly different. We brought home a child who plays with me and talks to me and looks in my eyes and tells me he loves me. The goal and focus of the Sensory Learning Program is to enable the central nervous system to better process sensory information by simultaneously stimulating visual, auditory, and vestibular systems with light, sound, and motion. By challenging these three sensory systems to work together and adapt to multi-sensory input, this intervention often improves speech, perception, understanding, social interaction, coordinated movement, 
and the ability to learn. We invite all parents interested in sensory learning program for a child to complete the confidential assessment on our website at www.sensorylearning.com. The pressures to be thin or ideal go beyond the Hollywood headlines. In fact, those suffering from eating disorders in the U.S. number in the millions, and eating disorders such as anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, and binge eating are more common than Alzheimer's disease. Eating disorders affect men, women, adolescents, as well as young children. On Understanding Eating Disorders, Dr. Tom Scales, an internist and psychiatrist, uncovers the causes and characteristics of various eating disorders and shares his expertise on current treatment approaches. Expert guests and personal stories from some who have recovered reveal the depth of emotional conflicts of these dangerously obsessive conditions and the resolutions that work. Tune in to Understanding Eating Disorders with Dr. Tom Scales every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Understanding Eating Disorders, the cycle of eating disorders, can be broken. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Betsy Hicks. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Betsy. Thank you for rejoining us. This is Autism One, a conversation of hope, and we are at the Autism One conference in Chicago, Illinois, celebrating this fabulous group of practitioners bringing all different types of modalities of treatments to you, and we have uh, been able to snag a few of them over to speak with you of some of the biomedical treatments and um, therapies that are being used out here. I have with me now Lauren Underwood, who's going to talk to us a little about methylation. Hi, thank you. Um, I kind of want to take off, take off where um, Dr. Lewis left off, um, relating to issues in metabolism, relating to autism. And w- one of the key issues that is discussed by many current researchers is the biochemical process of methylation. Um, now that more than ever, parents of autistic children should have hope about treating their children Biomedically, as um, earlier uh, Dr. DeMaia mentioned, children from autism do suffer from real biomedical clinical symptoms that can be treated. Um, Current research developments uh, relating to metabolic issues uh, are beginning to unravel and explain why many biomedical interventions that have been used particularly by ARI in the past, um, over the past 20 years they've discussed and have papers that show that Vitamin B6 and DMG DMG can have significant impacts on the quality of life of autistic children. Um, Dr. Richard uh, Deeth has uh, presented some research that shows that there is a subset, perhaps, of autistic children who have uh, defective or an enzyme that isn't functioning as efficiently as it should that's involved in the process of methylation. And because of this, they may not be producing all the antioxidants that they need in order to completely detoxify. Uh, Also, Dr. Jill James has presented research that further shows that many of these autistic children um, have lower levels of uh, glutathione. And uh, what's so important about methylation and the whole process is that methylation occurs in every single cell in the body. Mm. It's basically the breath of life. And if you're not methylating properly, a myriad of biochemical processes can be interrupted. Now, if a child is 
is suffering perhaps from a genetic defect or deficiency in some way, um, perhaps by bypassing this depletion and supplementing kids with methyl, methyl cofactors that they need to drive these reactions, uh, we, can, we can help um, improve their, this biochemistry. So this would explain why maybe giving cofactors like B6, methyl B12, and folic acid, TMG, and DMG can help so many autistic children. So you go ahead and continue with nutritional support that helps drive methylation, which is so crucially important for every cell in your body. Can you talk a little bit about the difference in vitamin B12, cyanocobalamin versus methylcobalamin? Um, as far as um, methylcobalamin, methylcobalamin is the actually active form that needs to kind of work in conjunction as a pair with methionine synthase, which helps you recycle methionine, which is an essential amino acid, uh, so that you can continue to produce more glutathione. So it's the active form. It's the one that you need to have. And if your body is not naturally producing it, perhaps by supplementing with methyl B12, you bypass the factor that body is not producing it. So those who may hear this and say, oh, my child needs B12, and they run over to the corner drugstore and they grab some B12, most cases it's going to be cyanocobalamin. And it's really good, of course, always, uh, you know, tell patients to read the labels, one, right. and obviously we necessarily don't want to use cyano because cyanide is toxic. <laughs> exactly. So you, you really it's want amazing to steer they even make it, but <laughs> clear of that. I like to always warn parents about that. Always read your labels. Like it, in supplements in general, I mean, there's so there's such a differentiation between all the different supplements, and, and it's very hard to know. Um, what what is your um, advice to a parent who wants to do this on their own without a practitioner to overlook it. I really don't like to recommend that they do this without a healthcare practitioner. Anytime that you want to change something in their their dietary intake or supplementation, it's it's really best to work with a physician, even just to you know monitor vitamin and mineral levels to to make sure that you're not doing anything harmful. Great, that that sounds wonderful. Well, I appreciate you being here today at the conference. Thank you conference. very much. We've been speaking right now to um, Lauren Underwood, and right now we are going to be joined with Dr. Jim Adams and speaking a little bit about heavy metals. I, I think, um, Dr. Adams, it would be impossible to speak a little bit about heavy metals without touching on the vaccine piece. We have we haven't mentioned it yet, although all of the practitioners here are, would be certainly in agreement that the vaccine piece has contributed to the abundance of heavy metals. But if you could touch on that a little bit, I'd appreciate it. Well, certainly in autism, there's a growing body of uh, literature suggesting that um, heavy metal poisoning, especially mercury, uh, could cause uh, could be a causal factor in uh, many cases of autism. The three major sources of mercury are mercury in seafood, um, especially fish high in the food chain, mercury from dental fillings, and what's probably the, the biggest tragedy is the mercury that was present as, a, present as a preservative in childhood vaccines up until a couple years ago when it was mostly removed from childhood vaccines. But the tragedy is that this mercury in the vaccines, thimerosal, um, was used at extremely high levels, far at levels far exceeding what the FDA and EPA recommend as safe dosages for children, and yet it was injected into them in a very needless fashion. And so it, um, there have been a number of papers looking at the epidemiology, looking at the question, did children who received uh, mercury-containing vaccines, were they at a greater risk of developing autism? And the answer is that there are several published studies showing no link 
and there are several published studies showing a very strong link between um, children who receive mercury-containing vaccines being at a much greater risk of developing autism. So um, that tells us a lot, I think, about um, one possible source. Um, if we look at um, the reasons why children with autism might have been exceptionally vulnerable to mercury and other toxic metals, as was just mentioned um, by the previous speaker, um, uh, Laura Underwood, that children with autism often have um, low glutathione levels in a published study. A year ago, it was shown they have only about half the normal amount of glutathione. That's a substance that protects the body against toxic metals. Also, many children with autism have had um, high exposure to oral antibiotics. Oral antibiotics in studies of rats, several published studies have shown that almost completely stops the body's ability to excrete mercury if they're on antibiotics. So it seems that the combination of low glutathione, um, high exposure to antibiotics really limited the ability of children with autism to excrete mercury. Uh, this resulted in low levels in their baby hair. There's a published study a few years ago showing children with autism had very low levels in their baby hair. Uh, we replicated that with a study um, and again found in a follow-on study with the help of the NIH that children with autism had low levels of mercury in their baby hair. And in a recent study we found that they had very high levels of mercury in their baby teeth, suggesting that, in fact, they um, are not able to excrete the mercury so it builds up to a high level in their body. We're now doing a very exciting um, and very controversial study looking at how to remove toxic metals from children with autism using an FDA-approved medication for treating lead poisoning. Um, this medication, DMSA, um, we're doing a study now of it in uh, 80 children. Um, the first 40 children have completed uh, phase one, and what we found is that, indeed, uh, the medication does cause um, a great increase in excretion of toxic metals, especially lead, to a lesser extent mercury, tin, and some other metals. Um, most importantly, we're seeing some good improvements in behavior, um, good improvements in speech and language, um, good improvements in cognition and play skills and social skills. Occasionally, we see some side effects, a little bit more hyperactivity, a little bit more tantruming. But um, so far, it looks very promising. We're now entering phase two of the study, which is a double-blind, placebo-controlled study, and we'll see if the children who receive the real medication actually do better than those who receive the placebo, the fake medication. And so we'll have the answer to that in um, several months. But um, so far, um, the results do look very promising. Already we've seen some children who have um, lost uh, their diagnosis um, due to this treatment um, from the study. Um, there are some children who are not benefiting. It doesn't help every child. But we are seeing some very good improvements in our, our children um, overall, um, and we're very excited about it. So um, it does seem that heavy metal toxicity is a problem with kids with autism and something that needs more research. Thank you. Thank you very much. That is uh, Dr. Jim Adams, who's also been on my show previously. Please check the archives for that. Don't go away. We'll return very shortly with Dr. John Hicks talking about the immune system. You're on Voice America, Autism One, a conversation of hope. Thank you. Learn more. Live better. Voice America Health and Wellness. We had a wonderful experience in our trip to the Sensory Learning Institute, and the main issue 
to sum everything up is that we went there with a child who was out of control and hyper, who had severe sensory issues and autistic tendencies, and we brought home a child who was vastly different. We brought home a child who plays with me and talks to me and looks in my eyes and tells me he loves me. The goal and focus of the sensory learning program is to enable the central nervous system to better process sensory information by simultaneously stimulating visual, auditory, and vestibular systems with light, sound, and motion. By challenging these three sensory systems to work together and adapt to multi-sensory input, this intervention often improves speech, perception, understanding, social interaction, coordinated movement, and the ability to learn. We invite all parents interested in sensory learning program for a child to complete the confidential assessment on our website at www.sensorylearning.com. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Betsy Hicks. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Betsy. Thank you for rejoining us. This is Betsy Hicks, and we are here at Autism One, a conversation of hope, and we are talking with practitioners at the Autism One Conference in Chicago, Illinois. This is a fabulous conference held every year, Memorial Day weekend, and there are so many different speakers and different types of modalities of treatment here. Um, Joining me now is Dr. John Hicks, who is a pediatrician that now treats both adults and children with chronic illness. Um, Dr. Hicks, can you talk a little bit about the immune system? Well, it's been sort of uh, pointed at by several of the speakers when you talk about uh, the gut and absorbing and reacting to things if you don't digest them well with the zinc, how zinc affects your immune system, and then high doses of antibiotics. The history on a lot of the kids is that they had an early age of very recurrent infections and received quite a few doses of antibiotics, some back-to-back, some suppression over months and months, and then all of a sudden they don't get illnesses anymore, so they've it's like their immune system then has shifted. And your immune system is to protect you inside and outside. It keeps things from coming in, and it also balances things inside and protects you. So um, if your immune system, the way you have to look at it is like a teeter-totter, and it needs to be in the middle and balanced. If one side is elevated, then the other side is suppressed, and then what can happen is your body can start making a lot of antibodies and you can be a setup for autoimmune disease. And what we're seeing now in some of the kids is that some of this may be genetically predisposed in that they their body tends to become chronically inflamed more easily than others. So are you saying that autism is genetic or are you saying that no. autism is a predisposition? The genetic pieces are predispositions. How can you handle heavy metals? Like they're seeing in the study, the the chelation helps some patients and it doesn't help others. So heavy metals aren't everything to everybody. They're a piece, and it's multiple pieces. So that's sort of the difficult piece of this is trying to figure out what are the best pieces that fit each child, and how do you figure that out and go about that? It's got to be a challenge for a parent. And what is your thought on to the question I've kind of been asking everybody is more about that whole 
magic bullet piece of going around and trying to find what's right for them and doing this on their own versus doing it with a practitioner and all those other pieces? Well, I think it's important, number one, you've got to be methodical and you've got to start with basic things first. And good nutrition, uh, good food, uh, a good diet, you need good minerals. Uh, you have to have that biochemical piece working. As that gets to work, then you can move forward and start to address other issues. So I think, as everybody said, it's important that you get a good foundation and then you move forward from there. Okay. I'd like to rejoin everybody who's, uh, who, anybody else who would like to say anything else to, um, you know, any piece that we have not hit yet or any other addition that they'd like to add before we close today. Uh, Lauren, do you have anything else you'd like to add? Um, yeah, I just wanted to add it, um, kind of t take over where, where Dr. Hicks was talking about. You really, even if nobody considers doing the, any type of specialized diet, a lot of these kids aren't eat, eating healthy. Right. Even if you just clean up their diet, you know, if they're just eating french fries and tater tots and chicken nuggets, that just can't be good. <laughs> Think about, you know, uh, organically grown foods, less preservatives, less dyes. If nothing else, consider it's doing so that. True. And the other thing is, is that, you know, you're not always sure what you need to treat. It's like the attack theory. And just because, like, maybe you clean up the gut, it might cause something else to happen. So, like, if you're sitting on two tacks and you take one tack out, Perfect. you're still going to be in pain. So right. it, it's multifaceted and it has to have, like, a comprehensive approach to treatment when, when you're working with your physician. I just wanted to mention that. And, and one other thing, that it's a genetic predisposition that maybe is triggered by something. No, I want you to keep talking. I'm sorry. That's good. No, that, that is triggered by an environmental factor. Yes, these kids are genetically predisposed, but it's because of some environmental factor, whether it's something in the environment, whether it's vaccines, that triggers the this inability or this uh, issue with detoxification. That's great. That is a very important thing to do because it, it truly happens as, it, as you're unpeeling this, this onion and unraveling this. Exactly. You just never know what's underneath. Great. Good. We have Dr. Alan Lewis rejoining us here. As a parent and provider, I just wanted to speak to the parents and to the grandparents mm -hmm. and the family. Uh, we've presented a lot of information today, and there's actually a lot more that's not known about autism than there is known about autism. And when trying to determine what to do for your child or your family member, I think it's important to trust your instinct. Mm, very good Put advice. Put things together and come up with a plan, and it should likely be right. Trust your instinct. That's wonderful. Thank you for that wonderful advice. Um, Dr. Phil D. Meal, can you please... Rejoin us and tell us what else you'd like to say. Sure. Well, I, I think just um, that parents and loved ones and even those who are listening who might be on the spectrum themselves who wonder what to do realize that this is a medical illness and it's not psychiatric, as I mentioned, and that you have the option. It's not up to me or to the neurologist or to the ABA therapist to tell you you can't use this therapy or you have to use that one. You need to learn about all of them, including biomedical treatments. And so then you have the choice to decide, are you going to use nutrition and some of these chelation treatments and so on? Those are the biomedical treatments, and it's not either or. Mm -hmm. 
I think that the, that we got into this mess, I think, sometimes because our parents don't know what to do. They're told one thing by the school district, another thing by the neurologist. Then they hear from somebody like me or the wonderful things on this program that there are practitioners who help your child to get nourished, to detoxify them, and use medical treatments. Those are an option. Don't feel forced to use them, but learn about them and decide if you want to do that. It's up to you um, and not up to someone else to force you. And it's not either or. We have kids, my son, and I think everybody here who's got a child on the spectrum, we get all these different modalities. We use as many of them as we feel is appropriate. And as Dr. Hicks said, you individualize, and no child really is the same. You kind of start with the basics and figure out what it is that that child needs. So biomedical treatment's an option. Don't let anyone tell you it's not. You're going to hear flack from others that this is not a real thing, that diets don't help, that detoxification doesn't help, that mineral treatments don't help, that gut treatments don't help. It just is not true. It's up to you um, to make your decision as to what you want to do, just like if a child had a broken bone and you wanted a cast versus surgery. Those are options, and you should feel free as a parent to be in control, and that's what you need to, to really realize. You know, decades ago, if a parent had a concern, they were really left to their own community to try to find the information, maybe some books. Now with the Internet. You mean for autism? For, well, for anything that their child may be suffering That's from. That's true, yeah. And, and now you, you, we have this Internet, and we have, this, mm -hmm. we have tapes of, of conferences, and, and we have such great communication that we don't have to feel like our pediatrician or our neurologist is the beginning and end all to our advice. Absolutely not. I think that um, sometimes parents feel that, that they're all alone out there. There are hundreds of people here just at this one conference and thousands of parents, doctors. There's over a thousand of parents here. Is there? I'm sorry yeah, if I no, got no, that. No, no, I just, I just You're right. It's, it's in the it's thousands. Amazing. It always is. And so there are real doctors and nutritionists <laughs> and Ph.D. Right. You know, scientists right. who are here and parents who know that this is a major piece of the puzzle that they can get for treatment for their child or for their 25, 30. I treat people from four and a half months old, the youngest I've had, to 54 years old and every age in between, and we all do, because they have medical problems. They need continuing help just like a diabetic person, just like somebody who has celiac disease. They need really a whole game plan that continues to keep themselves healthy and get better and better. And it does take time and a lot of effort, and that's where the parents come in and, and the grandparents. It's really, really something. So we're all grateful to you, Betsy, for putting this together. <laughs> you said more things? Real quick. Yeah, definitely, yeah, Lauren. And to follow up with that also, uh, you have to remember that it's you, the parent, who goes home with that child at the end of the day. And you need to make choices, just like Dr. Demaya said. Uh, you, you educate yourself, learn about the different modalities and the different treatments that are out there. But just because one person tells you no or you can't do it or it's not available doesn't mean that you can't go forward and find somebody else. You have to go home with that child at the end of the day. You have to face the music. You have to face the facts. And ultimately, it's your responsibility. Excellent advice. Thank you so much to the doctors and other concerned professionals that have been here today. Thank you to Autism One. Um, once again, to get the tapes from this wonderful conference, Autism One, that's O-N-E, Org. Thank you to our sponsor, Sensory Learning Center, and we will be talking to you next week. Bye-bye. The Sensory Learning Center would like to thank you for listening to Autism One, a conversation of hope. To contact Betsy or get more information, visit autismone.org. Tune in next Tuesday for another hour of education and conversation on Autism One, a conversation of hope with Betsy Hicks.